We are uh, reading a book right now called the, uh, I don't even ever get this right. Uh, I think it's the, Re the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, John Mark Comer sets himself up as an example of a hypocrite, basically. He says, look, I, I was viewed as and probably viewed myself as uh, a, a spiritual giant on some level, and he came to realize that he was actually disconnected from God. A good example of the very thing I, I mentioned when I first got up here, like uh, uh, this sense that I, I, I have to be somewhere that I'm not uh, to be uh, right with God. And he's saying, look, it, it, we, we've got to change something. Um, if you haven't joined us in that reading, I, I really would highly suggest it. Um, it's challenging, no doubt, but it's an easy read. If you haven't started, you can, you can catch up. It's not too late. Um, before I get to the sort of the subject matter today, I wanted to um, make some comments about the book uh, in general, and I want to encourage you uh, down this path of uh, discovering the personally unique reasons that you might be relating to the content. Um, let me use myself to explain, uh, whether you like it or not. Um, I don't, but I, I, it's not a bad example. Uh, I mentioned to you last week that I, I began to uh, be aware of the hurry in my life when uh, I was scurrying about beneath the streets of New York City, riding the subway system, and one of the subway doors whacked me in the head, knocked my glasses off, um, and into oblivion, never to be found again. And I lost my wife for a torturous 20 minutes as a result of my hurrying. And in that end of that debacle, I told my wife and my heart and my God that I'm going to stop unnecessarily hurrying. And I can tell you, it is a daily challenge. Every single day, I find myself going, I, I don't have to hurry right now. I am, but I don't have to. So when Adam suggested this book for the Lenten season, I wasn't surprised. God tends to work on multiple fronts, doesn't he? Do you ever see that happening? Like something's happening in you, and then it's happening right there, and then it's happening there, and then it's happening here. Didn't surprise me at all. <clears throat> but something happened when I began to read it. Although I could relate to the, the ill effects of Comer's hurried life, like what he was describing, the ill effects of it, I could relate to it. But I don't share the same personality or context of Comer. He's a type A, fast-burning, high-productivity, spiritual celebrity that was burning out when he ejected from his supersonic life. I don't live that way. I am not a 15-minute segment you know, manager of time. Honestly, if you call me and ask me what time it is, I could be off by hours. I don't know if you can relate to that, but I could be off by hours. I'm not a multitasker. <clears throat> I can focus on one thing if I'm on my game. <laughs> I've actually been committed to a balanced life for the better part of 30 years, as best I can. And it came about when Billy Graham challenged me, indirectly, so, so I don't want to be, you know, it wasn't like, right, but, that he mismanaged his life, that he neglected his family to a degree that he shouldn't have in order to focus on ministry. And he said to these young pastors that included me, don't do that. And I was like, okay. I've tried to live a balanced life. I'm only occasionally, 
very busy. I don't find myself to be driven to obtain success or power or popularity. The idea of success actually feels heavy to me, uh, demanding. So I'm not critiquing myself and I'm not trying to compliment myself. I'm not even comparing myself. I'm simply recognizing, and this is my point, how a contrast of life and context can exist while we commonly experience the negative effects of hurry. You can have a totally different life than Comer. You can have a totally different life than me, but we can all experience the ill effects of hurry. I wondered if it is true for you that you don't fully relate to him, but you do to the content. And again, I'm saying it is important to discover the unique why behind your hurry. The unique nature of your brand of horror, or even the right word for it. Let me exhaust the example here for me. The pressures in my life are related less to busyness and more to burdens. I didn't even know that until a good friend pointed it out to me. We were talking about the subject matter. And he said, uh, although you, uh, uh, the, the spaces in which you lead don't demand inordinate amounts of time, they do come with significant burdens. Are you with me? And I thought, I, I had to admit, I feel that. But I didn't, it, didn't, it didn't yet quite explain why I was hurrying so much. This life of hurry that shadows me. It took me a while. And I've only just recently discovered that it is precisely because my contribution is more intellectual than like physical or time-consuming. That's exactly why. Because my offerings, <laughs> what, what I do, what God's called me into, are hard to measure. And therefore, very hard to assign value to or significance. So I tend to scramble to feel like I'm working hard. And so you think I'm working hard. Am I, am I, are you with me? Is it just me? Okay. <clears throat> it's at least part of the reason I go long in my preaching. Even once the message is arguably complete. In some weird corner of my ego, more time, more energy, more content, feels like I'm working harder and earning my money. If I do a 20-minute message, I expect people to go, eh, you know, I didn't drive all this way for 20 minutes. Although I'm relatively sure 90 to 95% of you are going, good message, keep that up. <clears throat> but it's also why you might talk too much when you don't really have anything to say. It might be why you unnecessarily fill your schedule with things you don't really need to do. We're compensating. We want to be valued. We want to be significant. And so we, we scramble. We hurry. We load ourselves. I, I'm just trying to offer an example and encourage you to discover the uniquely personal root of why you are relating to this content if you are. Personal discovery is not easy. 
It's easy for your spouse and your friend to see exactly what is going on in your life, but it's hard for us sometimes to see. Learning about yourself is often hard, humbling. And, and, and this is actually what we want to lean into a little bit today. The sort of personal discovery, learning about self, right? I have, uh, I, have three fi- I have three points, five, if I hurry. Honestly, that's... <clears throat> Always the case. Real learning, let me start here. Real learning, learning that changes you. True learning, learning that changes you, always includes learning about you. It is, I think, arguably impossible to move across the maturity continuum without understanding yourself better. King David invited God to search him. Jesus held a mirror up to his disciples, which incidentally means learner, and his critics to see if they were willing to learn. One of the greatest minds in history, Paul, had a radical epiphany from the presence of God. He humbled himself and spiritually started over. And you, rightly done, Invite self-learning when you open the scriptures. There's also a historically clear pattern with the people of God that facilitates knowing yourself. You see this pattern throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Jesus' life dramatically. In the lives of those who follow the spirit of God in the early church and in many of you. A pattern that facilitates knowing yourself. And if you practice it, the pattern opens up connection to God, moves you across the maturity continuum, and enables you to navigate life well. If it were practiced, this pattern, this God pattern of life, if it was practiced, humanity and societies would flourish. Without this practice, the world suffers dramatically. I'm stringing you on here, I know. This powerful pattern, I'm telling you what it is, God calls his people to includes a certain place and a certain posture, a critical posture. Which isn't really all that surprising. If you think about it, the places in your life that are most meaningful included a particular posture. I think I probably told you about the trip I took back home to Pittsburgh this summer to attend a funeral of the wife of my my first pastor when I was a child. They were, she was probably 90. And in so doing, I uh, reunited and reconnected with uh, friends from that era that I hadn't seen for 40 years. And we were talking about the meaningfulness of that church building. And it struck me why it was meaningful. It's not that great of a building. What made it great was the posture of the people in it. 
I was fortunate enough in my early childhood to be in a community of believers that were authentic, vulnerable, humble, learned about themselves and helped you learn about you and accepted you and offered grace and mercy. I was standing in a circle with a group of adults for some unknown reason. I was engaged in this conversation and I told a joke, a terribly inappropriate joke. I had no idea it was inappropriate. And they handled that with so much poise, so much mercy, so much grace. And not only did uh, the, the friend in particular that I was connecting with uh, share that sentiment of, uh, we were even talking about how do we replicate that? We were talking about it in a way that made this particular moment in that building equally meaningful for the same reason. We were appropriately disclosing ourselves to one another, where we were and, and, and where the struggles were and what was going on in life and offering understanding and meaning. I've told you that my wife and I have a pilgrimage that we take every 10 years back to the location, the space, and the exact cabin where our, we started our marriage every 10 years. And we write ourselves a letter and we jam it into the ceiling in hopes that it'll be there 10 years later. And we've been successful three times, 30 years. There's another one up there right now. And as time goes on, we know someday only one of us will probably go and get that letter. But the moments that we've had in that building, in that cabin, aren't about the cabin. They aren't about Cook Forest and the Allegheny Mountains. They're about authenticity and humility and vulnerability and self-disclosure. Think about your places of meaning, the ones that are most meaningful to you. And if you look, you'll discover authenticity and vulnerability and self-disclosing postures within a relational context. Now, I get it. Some of you, many of you, maybe you're saying, wait a minute, there are a number of meaningful places in my life where I was actually alone and I wasn't with anybody. Stick with me. You're helping me make the transition. Places are powerful because within the place you've seen yourself You've let yourself be known, and another has reciprocated. With regard to God and the place that he calls us, and the posture that he calls us to, and this life pattern is what? Do you know where it is? Solitude and humility. The place of greatest meaning in the world, in the universe, in the cosmos created by God, the most important place you can go is solitude when the posture within it is humble. It's self-discovering. self-aware. And it is with God. The truth is you're never alone in this world. You're creating, you have a God that loves you. And his arm is not too short to reach you. This space that God calls us into, you could call solitude and self-reflection with God. It has been and is to this day critical to the people of God 
and the mission of God. Because there is no true work of God apart from solitude and humility with God. There is no true work of God apart from a rich being with God. And Jesus, as usual, shows us the way. Listen to some of the first chapter of the Apostle Mark's biography of Jesus. We went painstakingly through this book uh, over the last couple years. But listen again to this first, some of this first chapter and for uh, Jesus' commitment to solitude and gritty self-reflection. And then I'll throw in a couple practicals as we go. <clears throat> Just as Jesus was coming out of the water at his, at his baptism in the Jordan by John, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven said, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And here's the key verse. At once, the Spirit sent him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. Wilderness is a Greek word, is a translated from a Greek word that could be translated many different ways. Desert, lonely place, desolate place. And it is, it's interpreted different ways in different places and different, and he was in this place 40 days being tempted by evil. He was with the, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. What we see here is Jesus' commitment to early retirement. I'm going to put it that way. He's been baptized into the affections and the affirmations of God. He was baptized in water and he was baptized. He was immersed in the affections and the affirmations of God. And then without hesitation, he is thrust by the spirit into the health and the harshness of solitude. 40 days from God, this big God moment to this very difficult space. It's the earliest action following his baptism. And it is to retire from the ways of the world into solitude at the intersection of heaven and earth. God reaffirms this practice of solitude and humility right away by somewhat literally pushing him there at the very beginning of Jesus' new public ministry. That's what's happening. He's being baptized and he's going to start this significantly world-changing public ministry. But before that work of God happens, it is a requirement for even the Son of God to meet in the desert with his Father. Jesus will be stretched, and that stretching begins with a test at the hand of evil and at the hand of angels. These, these tests and trials of evil upon the person of Jesus describe what, per se? Severe self-discovery. That's what tests do. When you take a test, you're going to be told what you know and what you don't know. The tests of God tell you who you are and who you are not. They tell you what you're made of, where your heart is. 
In this case, we see Jesus pass his test with flying colors, and we discover who he is, the Son of God, without a doubt. To embrace the pattern of solitude and self-awareness is at least in part a facing of your own demons. I would consider that point number one. A harsh but healthy check of what's going on with you and in you. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons we and most of the first world population don't seek out solitude. It's why worship is often uncomfortable. It's why reading the Bible and particular parts of it are uncomfortable. To go into solitude in a, with a humble posture is to find out and to admit things that we don't want to find out and don't want to admit. A big part of us wants to believe we are the person we present to the world. And I want to think about it too long. Rather than accept the realities of me and allow God to work from there. Like I said, in a beautifully patient, grace-filled way. We have nothing to fear. Christ has made it okay. We always walk into the presence of God on the arm of Jesus, no other way. Forgiven, understood. God works from an honest place a vulnerable place, a real place. He works with the real you or nobody, <laughs> really. I don't want to be so extreme. Secondly, solitude is the origin of any and every spiritually significant and substantive thing. I've kind of alluded to this already. The, the Apostle John says, I am the vine. The, the, the Apostle John writes Jesus' words. These are Jesus' words. I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do a few things. No, that's what it says. I changed the end of it. It's very uncomfortable. Apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to read that. Think about the, the amazing things that you've done apart from God, which there are some amazing ones. And God would say, that's nothing. <laughs> The work of God emerges from the presence of God and only out of the presence of God. You, I'm the vine, you are a branch. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from that, you can't do anything. Out of solitude, Jesus emerges with revealed truth. Think about what comes out of this 40 days of solitude, among many things, the core message of life that would change the world. He didn't just have it. He learned it. He heard it. He had it mauled over in his mind and pressed into his heart. 
And God gave it to him, and he came out to do the work of God after having been deeply, radically with God. It says, Jesus went from there into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The gospel message comes directly out of Jesus' humble solitude with God. And a time of grappling with who he is. He was tempted and tested by evil to be someone else. And because he was a son of God, he was able to resist the temptation and be only who he was intended to be and made to be. Not coincidentally, this gospel that came out of solitude requires our solitude to hear it and do it. Listen to the gospel message. Repent and believe. Let me paraphrase or expand it. Know yourself, the wrongful realities of your heart and mind, the errors of your way. Repent and start knowing and following, believing the way of a very good eternal father and son. Repent and believe is know yourself. See what is within you that needs to be forgiven and restored and then go a different way. The meaningful things of God that you desire in your life, his will, his peace, his direction, his comfort, his voice, his mission can come about in no other way but from meaningful, humble solitude with him. It is the, the, the Bible is riddled with this pattern and this example. But where, where did the Israelites go when they came out of their captivity uh, in, in Egypt? A desolate place, the desert, a wilderness for 40 years. And what came out of that? What was the purpose of that? Why didn't they just go direct? Because God wanted to meet with them. And he wanted them to know his voice and learn from him and hear from him. He needed this future people of God that would inhabit the earth. He needed that to come out of not just a mission, but a relationship. When Paul was knocked off of his feet and blinded with uh, who God really was, he spent years digging back into everything that he thought was true, everything about himself that he thought was great, years before he became the greatest missionary ever to live. Almost every, I think every single situation in the New Testament in the early church when um, they went this way or that way, or decided we're going to go this way and then went that way. It, every one of those is, is, is supported by um, of, of times of prayer and fasting. The people of God that are doing the work of God are always doing the work of God out of being with God. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, the, the, the best earthly you know, portrayal, picture, words that, that show us eternity. Where did they come from? 
John was exiled to an island. <laughs> Sometimes we don't choose our solitude. One corollary here, <clears throat> and you can probably feel this, learning about yourself increases in its necessity to the degree that you want to know God, enjoy all that he has for you. Um, when, when I was pastoring Heritage Christian Church on the northeast side of town with Pastor Jim, we were there for eight years um, until God uh, moved that church to plant three churches, one of which was Vista. Uh, in the early days, um, we were growing from 250 or 300 people. We were passing through 500, and there were very few pastors in town that had churches of more than 1,000, and one of them was Dave Early in uh, Gehanna, in New Life Church in Gehanna. So we asked if we could meet with him and just learn from him. He was over 1,000, and um, we ended up somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,500 within four or five years. It was a very hurried life, to be quite honest. And he said this, he said a lot of things, but this has stuck with me through all of my life as a pastor and a church leader. He said this, to the same degree that your church grows, you will be stretched to grow as well. So he said, we, he said how fast is your church growing? And we said, it's like 25% per year. He goes, well, first of all, it's too fast. You can't really do that in a healthy way. And we're like, oh, okay, we don't know how to change that. And he said, well, that means you have to change by 25%. Like, you have to grow by that much. That's why I get sick to my stomach every time God puts something of great, enormous magnitude before us as a church to venture into. I think, oh, I don't... I, just once, God, can I lead through something in your church that doesn't require me to learn so much? Can I just use what I've learned in the past this time? The answer is no, because he wants to be with me. He wants to know me. He wants me to know myself. He wants me to mature. He wants me to grow. He wants me to increase my faith and my character. It's never done with us. And then out of that, he wants to do things with us. So Jesus emerges from the 40-day test of solitude with a life-altering, world-shifting orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and then comes into an onslaught of work, busyness, and demands on his life. I'm reading still in just Mark 1, 16, verse 16, 17, 18, 19. He's calling followers, Andrew, John, Peter, James. He's taking on weight. These men have needs. They are not fully developed. He's going to have to disciple them and train them. They're going to get sick, and he's going to have to take care of them. They're going to fail, and he's going to have to walk alongside them. He's going, they're going to hurt him. He's taking it on. He went to Capernaum, and the Sabbath came, and Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. Now he's teaching. Every time he goes to the synagogue, he's trying to work his message back from an hour to 45 minutes down to 30. It's a lot of work. Every week, what am I going to teach? 
Now he's teaching. People are amazed at his teaching. So now the expectations are rising. Just then a, uh, then, then a man in their synagogue was possessed by an impure spirit, cries out. So he's got these followers. He's taking that on. He's got a teaching ministry. He's, got, he's now dealing with spiritual um, uh, intensity um, and, and all sorts of things. He's dealing directly with the demonic powers. Verse says, says, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. It is coming, man. It is coming hard. They go to the home of Simon and Andrew, who's, and Simon's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever, and he heals her. The fever left her. And that evening, after sunset, which in that day and age is bedtime, <laughs> the sun goes down, you go down. Not here. The people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed people. All of them. The whole town gathered at the door after bedtime. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Not all. Many, which is a lot. But in addition to healing ministry, now he's got to defend and deal with people who didn't get healed. This guy is on the verge of becoming John Mark Comer. Jesus is like, he is taking it on, man. It's like coming. This is this, is this Christian life. This is, you know. Where does he go from here? Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Side note here, the scriptures make it very easy to define prayer very differently than we do. It is a humble, bowing before and breathing with God under the covering of Jesus' forgiveness and his restoration. That's prayer, a place of few words and much listening, few demands and unending gratitude few questions, and a growing mountain of faith, a place of solitude and humility, not primarily to know and to negotiate what God has in store, but a preparation of soul for whatever God is bringing next. That's prayer. That's where Jesus goes. Jesus needed to go and pray Jesus, the Son of God, needed to go and be with the Father in order to proceed in a, healthy mass, in a healthy way in the direction that he was supposed to go. Verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And we see throughout the rest of Jesus' life, this weight and pressure and demand, yet he was never out of communion and out of the practice of solitude and humility before the Father. 
The unharried Christian life is not void of responsibilities or action or even weariness. But the Christian life is only those things if it is void of wilderness, desert, peace, quiet, presence, rest, solitude, humble learning. If the knowledge of and presence of God evades you, it's likely because such a life can only come by following Jesus into a lifetime of solitude, of continuous and early retirements, rather than a few special times when you need him. It's a really obscure quote from a movie called I Am Legend. You remember that movie? It's a very weird, apocalyptic movie. But right in the middle of it, this young woman is claiming to the character that Will Smith claimed that there was other community somewhere. It wasn't just them that were left, which was the understanding. There's a community somewhere. He said, how do you know that? She said, God told me. She says, and this is in the context of this wickedly bad set of circumstances, right? She said, it's quieter now, and I can hear God. I would argue, if it's not quiet, if there isn't solitude, if there isn't a humble, bowing, continuously and regularly in your life, you can't. You just can't. And if you don't hear from God, you're not going to know yourself and you're not going to know what God wants to do with you. And the changes that you long to happen in your life will not happen. And you'll never feel like you're enough or that you're doing the right thing. I'm going to finish with this. Trust Jesus. Grab a gospel. Embrace solitude. And stay there. Any way that you can, stay there. And prepare yourself for a meaningful, purposeful, peaceful life beyond your imagination. Let's help each other go there. Stick together. Hold hands when you cross the street, you know? Remember that book, Everything I Learned About Life I Learned in Kindergarten? <clears throat> help each other. We need one another to get here. God, you are so gracious, so present, so patient. As we scurry about getting whacked in the head by subway doors, losing our glasses and our relationships. I'm praying now that your spirit would move in me and us like it moved in Jesus and that you would push us and drive us into solitude. You give us agency, but at times, Lord, we just need you to push us.
Would you do that? We want to know you. And we know that we cannot know you. We don't know ourselves. Ironically, we can't know ourselves unless we know you. Guide us into that space of deep and eternal meaning. We know it's the source of life. Help us to believe it and act upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.